Welcome back to another edition of Patriot to the Core podcast. I am Thad Forrester, and this is episode number 84. And today I have got former Air Force combat controller Zach Asmus and former Marine Cress Clippert with me. Before I get to them, I just want to share that I, like so many other Americans, have been extremely angry the last several weeks over how our leadership has handled this Afghanistan situation. And I don't think many of you really care to hear my opinion, so I'm not going to go into it much. But basically, I have been very distracted. I've been very angry. We lost 13 Americans. More are injured. And I don't see a bit of remorse from President Biden and his team. I don't think they care. There are so many instances from press conferences where he didn't even mention Afghanistan to press conferences where Afghanistan was third on his list to where he... We all know the situation at Dover. We kept looking at his watch. One time, I can I can give a guy a pass on that, big deal. But he kept doing it, kept doing it with everybody off the plane. So, yeah, as someone whose brother was killed by terrorists in Afghanistan, yeah, I'm angry. And I also know that we left good people over there, Americans, and there are some Afghan allies that are left there as well. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And because how can we trust them? How do we vet them and know that they are good guys? How do we know that they're not still communicating with family members in Afghanistan once they get here, you know, and plotting something? All those things we're going to talk about, I'm sure, I don't think many of us, many of my audience knows about the special immigrant visa, the SIV. Uh, I didn't. Of course, most of you probably knew more about it than me, but I think it's still going to be very educational. And these two guys on today have been doing this not just for the past month. There's a lot of good things that have happened in the last month. People that have really donated money, planes, time, skills to get in there and to help get people out, to cut through some of the the red tape and get some folks out. But Zach and Chris have been doing this for a few years and helping good Afghanis or, or Iraqis get out and get to the U.S. and get acclimated here and get set up where they can start working and paying back the money that they were basically given to help for their plane tickets and to get them here. So they're going to explain that process, and we're going to talk a little bit about the fiasco in Afghanistan. I had to get their thoughts on some things, and uh, they personally know people that are still there that were left behind that were that are Afghans, but they really have an approach of trying to help people, and they love this country. They serve this country honorably. They know that the Taliban is no good. The same with ISIS, ISIS-K, all of them. He says there's not there's not much difference between any of them. And they are pure evil. So yeah, they can't be trusted. But there are people there that can be trusted. And some of them were teammates of Zach and Cress's. What's been done is done. The last plane is out of there. The, US, the war is over, at least with our government. And I think we're going to talk about the war is not over for the people in Afghanistan still. But in the United States president's eyes, the war is over, and he thinks he's done a great thing, and he thinks he did a, the way he got everybody out so quick is, is very noble, and, and I think that has nothing to do with him. But, yeah, the Air Force and the Marines and all the, our military over there did an extraordinary job in some extremely tough circumstances, and they are to be applauded. And those who gave their lives and those who are injured, uh, all of you, I'm, I'm so grateful for our military and the selfless service that they provide I think you'll find this episode very informational, and these are two guys that are, that are taking action. This is what we do now is, well, it's over. 
we're supposedly vetting all of these Afghans now and sending them here. We're not sending anyone here who's not vetted well. I guess we'll see. But I know that the ones that Cress's organization and Zach's organization, I know that what the ones they bring over are fully vetted. So thank you for listening. Let's talk to Zach and Cress. Zach and Cress, thank you for being on Patriot of the Core. I've been pretty fired up, as I'm sure many people have been. Well, I know, obviously, a lot of Americans have been in Afghanis the last several weeks. So hopefully we can keep our emotions in check today. But before we get into it, Zach and then Chris, will you tell us your background and why you're on here talking about what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, I think you said my name first, so I'll go. I'm uh, Zach Asmus. I was a Air Force combat controller. So same job as your brother. And I was in the Air Force from late 2009 through 2000, summer of 2015. I did a, a combat deployment to Southern and, and Central and, you know, all parts of Afghanistan. And I think, you know, what, what probably drew me to this moment is I had an incredible relationship with the interpreter that, that helped us on every mission that we did there. We had a pretty kinetic uh, deployment and I came back to the States, you know, wanted to find, uh, you know, a way to help volunteer to, to help veterans. And then ultimately I discovered, you know, man, our interpreters, um, you know, are, are not widely regarded and are held in any esteem. And how can I help that community as well? So I think the way I, you know, I got here was, was getting involved initially with veterans, which I, I still try to help out with through a nonprofit here in Houston, but eventually connected with Cress and, and found real purpose in, in helping kind of uh, resettle you know, some of the special immigrant visa applicants that come here. And, you know, if I can find out a way to tap into my professional network to, to make their lives better once they arrive. Thank you. What about you, Chris? Yeah. So uh, I served in the Marine Corps. I was an infantry officer um, with my first deployment, also being to Afghanistan. When I was there, I, I kind of connected with our little group of interpreters. I was working closely with them and doing some, some liaison work with the uh, Afghan National Army there. Uh, I thought that was rewarding. Um, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I moved down to Houston, and I started working for a veteran organization um, called the Travis Mannion Foundation. Yep. Um, yeah, and I started the, uh, the Houston office down here for that, and I got really tied in with this other great group, Combined Arms. Uh, and through that, I got networked to all these different veteran organizations, and I realized that you know, number one, it's it's really terrific to be a military veteran in the United States, but it's especially good to be a military veteran in Houston, Texas, because we've got so many great, uh, great organizations and we're so well organized through the combined arms system. I, I, there was an event I attended a few years back, and it was for veterans to network with these special immigrant visa holders. I didn't know a whole lot about that program, but I remember I had signed uh, one of these special immigrant visa supervisor letters a long time ago when I was in Afghanistan. And I knew that I had, I had one interpreter buddy that was here in Houston. So I invited him out. We went, we all met up at the Starbucks and um, there was a big crowd of his buddies, all combat interpreters, all guys that had served alongside the Marines or the army uh, in combat for years and years in some of the most dangerous situations far longer and far more dangerous than what most of us in the service did. And as I was talking to them, I realized they had all the same needs and wants and interests as military veterans. 
and I was already connected in all these military organizations. And I thought, wow, you know, um, uh, we don't even really have to make much new if we just kind of invited these guys. These guys know what it means to serve. These guys have served our country and their original country. And now most of them are great American citizens. We should try and incorporate a way um, for them to take part. So ever since then, a few years ago, I've been involved in a few different organizations that advocate for the special immigrant visa and help take care of them as they come to the United States. Because as Zach said, they don't have a lot of status. They don't have a lot of notoriety like, um, like we as veterans do. And so we started the Combined Arms, SIVs, and Allies group. So special immigrant visa holders and all those that were our wartime allies over there, we're here to serve them and really just extend, extend some of the same uh, honors that we do to our fellow veterans to them. I'd like to even back up a little bit and explain what combined arms is because I think it's important and it might be important later in the conversation. But when you get out of the military, there are, and this was in 2015, this was the stat, there's 49,000 veteran service organizations that claim to help you with a resume or transitioning into the private sector. Um, so as you can imagine, when you're getting out, you don't know who to trust, who to vet, which one to get involved with. There's no way you could possibly interact with all 49,000 and find the best one. So to highlight that confusion and to parallel it into what happens once you're, once you're actually out and you want to do something besides transition, um, there's all kinds of volunteer organizations. There's the Wounded Warrior Foundation. There's the Mission Continues. There's uh, the Travis Manning Foundation, like Crest mentioned. There's this SIV group. There's all sorts of things that are, that could lead a veteran into all sorts of different directions. Combined arms brings all those together and even houses them physically in one location. So it reduces overhead. They share a CRM system. It really is kind of like a best of breed, um, you know, organizational approach that really helps be as efficient as possible and, and helps people collaborate. And it's like a one-stop shop for veterans. If you like, if you want to go to the VA, like sometimes you don't have to go to the VA, the VA comes to combined arms among other things. So as a vet, you go park right out in front of this building and you immediately have access to, you know, Crest, let me know the number of organizations currently inside combined arms, but it's, it's at least it's dozens, more right? than 50 now. It's uh, yeah. you know, there's some, some sit in there physically and some have other offices, but they're all through the network, all of their programs, which, you know, most organizations have multiple programs with varying eligibility criteria. And they've cataloged it all to match you and, and your profile with whatever you want and need. So how long have you been working with, it, is it SIVs or SIVs? What's the appropriate? I usually say SIV. I guess uh, I guess you could say either. I mean, SIV kind of sounds like something else. They, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, SIV, I mean, special immigrant visa. Either way you say it, the average American has no idea what you're talking about, you know? Yeah. Uh, so you've got to explain it either way. And so um, the special immigrant visa is a special program that was that started in 2009 for our interpreters primarily and all those that helped us in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, because what we found is uh, that these people that were helping us, our allies, started to get targeted and we needed a way to get them to safety. Yeah. So that's what SIV, special immigrant visa Civ, whatever you want to call it, I think it's all appropriate. Um, but I've been working with that community here in Houston for about three years now. Yeah, so that's important is 
we know what's happened here and everybody has gotten involved in the last few weeks with what are we going to do with the good Afghanis and, you know, these interpreters and some of the other ones that have really have helped us and proven or basically been vetted. But you've been doing this since long before the, the fiasco has happened this, this past this past month. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, it's been heartbreaking to see this happen so fast. I mean, uh, it's really hurt. We have many Afghan friends here and every single one of them has family that they're worried about. And uh, it's just been real heartbreaking for the community. Yeah. And I'd, I'd even go back and say that, you know, Crest is claiming three years here, but when you take the action to um, sign a letter of recommendation during service, you are putting your name to a person and, and saying like, I vouch for this person to come to the United States. So Crest, you know, served shoulder to shoulder as did I, but you know, I didn't have the opportunity to write the letter of recommendation, but you know, Crest has three years, but I mean, I think it honestly goes back to the beginning of your deployment. If you had a grew a positive relationship with anybody and, and you left that place better than you found it and you um, stood up and vouched for somebody because you believed with the work they did that the United States helped, you know, people here and, and abroad, um, then I think you honestly should credit that, you know, volunteerism effort all the way back to then. For someone like me and many of my listeners that have never, never been there, never been in your situation deployed in Afghanistan or Iraq. How do you trust? How do you start trusting these guys who, I mean, we know some have turned. I mean, one of, uh, we know uh, Danny Sanchez that happened to him, a, a combat controller. Uh, I may have his mom on the show soon. That happens where they do turn, they infiltrate, but, but how do you learn to trust these guys? Cause some of them have proven themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, that is, that was, front and center on my deployment, we were very worried about what we called the green on blue uh, threat. So, um, you know, just in, in like war gaming uh, or whenever you're drawing a map with the bad guys and the good guys, the bad guys are red and the good guys are blue. Um, but we were saying this green on blue threat. So these, the green was our allies. And so what happens if the allies get infiltrated um, if they get turned somehow. And that was certainly a factor that we planned for. Um, and it was a challenge. Uh, you know, my, my interpreter, my good buddy, um, who had been with the Marines for years, one day he was in the gym on the base and he got a cell phone call about a bomb. And he started talking about the bomb in the gym and someone called, called the, <laughs> called the Marines to come like, uh, to come ask him what he was doing. And of course he's talking about a bomb. We're in a war. <laughs> um, but that was, that was the challenge. Uh, so, so there are many things that happen during their service, for instance, routine polygraph checks. That was something that all of our interpreters had to do. So, I mean, polygraph, that's pretty intense. Uh, they had to go to a lie detector test with our intelligence guys on the base on a regular basis. For the most part, we controlled their phone use and provide, you know, monitored who they were calling and things like that. So they had this tight control. Um, and that was just while they were working with us. But when it came time for them to actually get processed to come to the United States, it became even more intense. So they had a lengthy process where they had to get letters of recommendation from everyone they served with and HR letters from the companies they worked with for two years, two solid years with no adverse uh, markings on them. They had to prove in writing that they had a credible threat against their lives. 
uh, from the Taliban, from the enemy there. And then after that, that proved they were eligible. Then they go through this grueling process of background checks from pretty much every intelligence agency that's active in Afghanistan, which is pretty much every intelligence agency. And that's where the system would get backed up a lot. And so after all that, after all those background checks, then they would go to an interview in the embassy and a medical screening and finally come to the United States. And by then, I mean, we've never had any issue with any uh, special immigrant visa recipient being any anything related to um, you know, the Taliban or uh, any terrorist group in, in the United States. We've never had an issue with that uh, because it's do so you, rigorous. Do you know the number on that, Chris? The number on... Uh, SIV recipients who come to America in the... You know, oh, yeah. Status, it's, it's, something there... like, it's something like 20,000, I think, from Afghanistan. And then... You're in the U.S. now? Yes, uh, that have arrived over the past 10 years or so. Wow. You know, I'll expand on, on that point as well because i think it was definitely it's a culture shock no matter how you prepare for it right i was in special operations and i did a, a two and a half year pipeline and a another year um you know trying to earn my my jtac upgrade in addition to doing other stuff in, in southeast asia at the same time and like you think you're prepared for it you show up it doesn't matter man it's still it's still a culture shock and it's still the same question you asked us runs through everybody's head how do i know who to trust uh, how much can I tell somebody? How much can I lean on them? You know, is their information valid? Whatever, right? And and that really runs through your head. But I think, and and here's the thing: not everyone got a letter of recommendation, right? So you still use your judgment over there, just like you do, uh, you know, in everyday life, talking with people or, or doing business. And you know, let's be real: some terps would be rotated out if they if they didn't fit. And um, you know, some you trusted more than others. And if, and if you were having a, a super kind of high level mission come down, you would um, definitely hope that your, you know, your best interpreters were going on that with you. So, you know, it just, it just became one of those things where you just had to kind of trust your gut. And as crazy as that sounds, that's, that's what happens. And, and man, those guys have saved my skin so many times. So I know, you know, not just, uh, these aren't just words, right? Like these guys walk the walk kind of after, mm-hmm. you know, saying that they would do certain things for us. So it's just, just like anywhere else, use a judgment call. But I think bottom line is not everyone gets a letter of recommendation. So, you know, when Cress and, and other officers put their, put their necks out for these guys, um, it's because they saw the same thing happen on, on the other side, right? They put their necks out for us for six, nine months, a year that we saw and the next group rotates in. So. What kind of money does it take for them to get to the U.S.? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question as well. So um, first off, when they when they do finally get their visa and they are allowed to come here, their flights for and 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 by the way, when a special immigrant visa applicant finally gets their visa, they come and they get to bring their um, their spouse and their children as well, or any children under twenty one. Um, so it's not the whole extended family, but they do get to bring their family. And those flights are purchased with a promissory note, which is like a loan um, from the International Office of Migration, which is a UN program. And so they come here on that on that promissory note and they uh, have to pay that back over time. So initially, when they get here, they have to quickly learn how to become productive members of society and then as far as resettling them, 
um, they get assisted by uh, our country's refugee resettlement agencies, which are nonprofit groups that do use federal funding and give them something to start with for the first few months. So um, I can speak directly to the one family that Combined Arms is helping right now. You know, it costs about $3,200 a month for a family of seven. That's a lot of people that we are saving and 3,200 in the grand scheme of things. I mean, this is, this is all private funds, but it's very similar to the total benefit package that uh, a traditional SIV would get with a regular refugee group. So, you know, and I, I would, I would think very carefully about how we spend our money. Uh, a great example would be if you think about a hellfire missile. Now I'm a Marine. I love the idea of shooting a hellfire missile at a bad guy. Um, but when I was in Afghanistan, one of our kind of regular, uh, strategies was to use these hellfire missiles to take out a farmer with a hundred dollar Soviet rifle. You know, that's not a great use of our money. $70,000 can go a long way. You talk about resettling one family for $3,200 a month for, um, just a few months. And then there's those seven people that will never be bad guys. And then there's those hundreds of people that there are, are their extended family members and their friends and their community that are learning that, okay, these people went to the United States. The United States is not the bad guy. They're telling us what it's really about. We've been told a lie this whole time versus you blow up the bad guy and, um, you know, you're kind of confirming to all his and friends and family that they don't like us anymore. So that's kind of how I view the way we spend our money, because I know people think about that. They don't, we want to keep our own money. We don't, we are very careful about where our taxes go. But when you talk about, if you really want to win, if you really want to win, if you really want to beat the bad guys, programs like this, they make good, bad guys, they make good guys, and they discourage you from being a bad guy. I mean, it, it's a lot more bang for your buck. Yeah, let's and, and let's be clear. Like, I, I dropped. You know, I I asked for a lot of Hellfire missiles to come off of rails, and and I was sure about every one. Um, and I wasn't thinking about the cost. But to be clear, like, the let's just be clear. The Taliban are awful. Like, they are bad, <laughs> bad, bad dudes and what's happening now and in the media where it looks like you know maybe we've got some partnership with them or allyship or maybe we should trust what they're saying who knows i mean i, I hope for the best but but everything crest and i have continued to see in here has been the opposite of that so just want to like clear that up like the taliban is 100 percent you yeah. know evil yeah. and um but to crest's point I, I totally concur some some people now look we rounded up some people. We questioned a lot of people when I was over there. Sometimes it's hard to tell the good from the bad. And honestly, sometimes, you know, some of the people you round up that are, that are bad guys, those people were just taking the one extra dollar a day or whatever the, the difference was right. And pay um, to switch sides. So sometimes it's, it's, you know, that sort of thing can work, but who knows, but I think Chris's point is valid, right? Like you resettle people here that, that earned it. And, 3200 a month or something might sound like a, like a high cost, but it really is just, you know, a drop in the bucket compared to the scheme of things. If we had to go back and, and we had these seven people that didn't get here and, and now there's seven bad guys. Right. So. 
Yeah. I see what he's saying there. I want to figure out how to, how to get all this in because I want to expound on that as really what does the $3,200, how, how are we taking care of them specifically? What is that, you know, power, water, yeah, um, yeah. all that stuff. But also if we could back up a minute, can you help like these Afghans be, be real people to us? Like who are they right now that are, let's just take the current situation. Who are these that are trying to get through that are, that are going to, they, they, or maybe they were, maybe they're not now since we're apparently out of there. And by the way, we're recording this on September the 2nd. So we've already lost 13 Americans, many injured, and we're, the last plane is out of there apparently. But what, what were the papers they were showing at these checkpoints and who are they? I know they're at their interpreters. They're also other allies. Can you just help yeah. us understand yeah. who they are? And then, and then once again, what are specifics once they get here? Sure. I mean, a little bit to paint, not just like who they were, but what kind of people they were um, and are. Many of them, especially in their early days, they they joined up, up forces with us because they believed in our cause. They hated the Taliban. They hated what was going on in their country. They liked the idea of the way that we wanted to do things. Um, they admired the American soldiers and Marines and airmen that were coming into their villages and treating them with respect. And so they wanted to join up. And this was before there was a visa program. There was no, no reward. There was no promise of getting to go to America. They wanted what we wanted. Um, and so they joined up. And then, you know, over time, you know, the, the, the visa was certainly an, an incentive too when it came around. And I think right now what you're seeing is many people that maybe all along, they just wanted to stay in Afghanistan. They wanted their home to be a better place. It's where they grew up. It's where their whole family lives. And they wanted to stay there. Um, but now that's no longer tenable, not just for themselves, but for their family members. So you see a lot more people. When we started this evacuation process, we already had a backlog of 18,000 applicants um, that that we should have been processing sooner. So 18,000 individuals that helped us and their family members. So that comes out to about 80,000. So that's a target that we need 80,000 people there. Um, We did this big evacuation. We got a ton of people out fast um, and it was a very impressive airlift. However, we missed the mark. And I think um, while we got way more people out, we got about 10% or less than those individuals we really wanted to get it out. Um, the ones that were in the most danger and had, um, you know, you asked about the documentation. So we had a combination of U.S. citizens. We had green card holders. So people that had already immigrated from Afghanistan to the United States and they'd gone back to, to Afghanistan to take care of something for their family or to see them one last time. You had visa holders so they had been issued a visa they were ready to go to the united states and then um it was too late uh and then you've got the people these like these like i said before these eighteen thousand principal applicants and their eighty thousand family members that had served alongside u.s forces had started their application process but hadn't received their approval yet because it was a huge backlog um and probably deserved to come here but didn't have the paperwork So what you had was the State Department issuing people a mixture of documents, whether people had passports or uh, they they had U.S. passports or they had Afghan passports with U.S. visas or they had a green card. I mean, I think most Americans that that don't come from an immigrant family probably haven't even seen a a green card before. 
or maybe not even a foreign passport. And then you've got Marines on the, uh, on the line at the gates trying to sort all this out. I mean, it's taken me years to figure out all this paperwork and, you know, what's what. And um, I think that we were ill-prepared to quickly sort people in that emergency type situation. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll clarify something here too, because you know, I know Chris and I feel the same way. The airlift was impressive. And, and when we say that, we mean the Air Force and the Marines did an absolute amazing job with the situation they were handed at the last minute. Those guys stayed up all hours of the night, did things above and beyond what they were asked to do, um, moving that many C-17s in and out of a single runway in, in enemy-controlled airspace is not an easy task. So to all the maintainers, to all the Marines guarding uh, the perimeter, to all the, the pilots, to the air crew, everybody, I mean, those are the people that made this thing happen. And it shouldn't have been happened. It shouldn't have had to happen in a pinch like this. Um, I think we, we can all agree on that, right? Like, who knows how far back we should have started, but for sure on April 13th, when we gave a September 11th withdrawal date, um, the night of April 13th, there should have been plans in place to start, Yeah, you know, this removal in an orderly way. And then, you know, the second point on, uh, you know, who are these people and what documents they're showing there, man, these people are, you know, the ones that we've written letters of recommendation for, the ones that Cress and I would put our necks out for, the ones that we, um, you know, spend, you know, the second we get off work, um, you know, we spend on Facebook Messenger trying to help them out or, you know, previously and, and continuing, you know, bring mattresses to furnish their apartments or greet them at the airport so they see a friendly face when they arrive in America. Man, these people are, are legit and they deserve to be regarded in the same esteem as as many, if not all, you know, combat veterans. These are people that we rotate in and out six to nine months. Um, you know, maybe you know, I only did one combat rotation, right? I come back, I still get free toll roads and stuff, you know, for, for driving my, my truck on the road with my, uh, you know, license plate on and stuff. And people stand at ball games and, and salute everybody in the seventh inning and stuff. And the SIVs get, zero recognition they come here and they're working in part-time manual labor stuff their lives you know to some degree they're living in sometimes worse conditions than than when they were there so there's a lot of work to be done on on helping them you know in stage two of once they're here what do we do but Chris, i almost want to kind of like take a minute to let you talk about the muhammad family just because of that would highlight the bureaucracy of the process i think to like the nth degree so we've seen people that, you know, how is this thing supposed to be solved in the month of August, <laughs> right? All this, all this SIV paperwork that's been in play for some people for over 10 years. And we're talking, we talked to one guy who sent 100 emails back and forth to the State Department clarifying a date on a letter of recommendation. And these are people that have to go to internet cafes in between going on combat missions, in between living in, in the backyard with your enemy and they've been doing this for years and years and years, and they're getting uh, nothing but red tape, you know, from the American government. So, you know, Chris, I think that story might be a powerful one to share right now. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, so by law, the special immigrant visa program was always only ever supposed to take nine months. If you applied for a special immigrant visa, in nine months later, you should get a decision. And 
what happened was there was no energy behind it. And this was getting backed up. It was getting backed up in the State Department and in the National Visa Center and in the uh, USCIS. I mean, all everything was backed up. And you get these people that their applications would get lost in the process. Um, and I mean, you talk about like the VA being messed up or the things you hear about, you know, what veterans have to go through. I mean, this we should feel just as fired up about this when we hear it because you've got people that are, in combat with us, getting injured and shot at with us. Um, and in addition to that, their families getting threatened, brothers getting killed because they look like them, uh, family members getting killed at events because they expected them to be there. And you, you come to, to one of the worst cases was, you know, we call them the Muhammad family because we, we can't use the real name. Uh, there's still friends and family back home that could get hurt. So, I mean, this family, you know, he had served alongside U.S. forces for 14 years. He had been applying for 10 years uh, for SIV. And um, when he finally got it approved or, you know, he didn't get the visa, but he had the next step. They call it chief of mission approval. He finally got that approved in January of this year when he got stopped. His car got stopped at a Taliban checkpoint. Uh, he and his 11-year-old son were in the car and the Taliban recognized him they knew he had helped the americans and they they shot him they killed him there they shot up the car they yelled at him and, and insulted him in front of his son as he died really really gruesome horrible stuff um and at that point his family his family of still seven people a big family had no way to escape because um the principal applicant the interpreter that had served and earned the visa had died. So they couldn't continue the application. Um, and this family was left alone. The Taliban, the Taliban put a note on their door that said, we're going to kill your oldest son next because he's the son of a traitor. And is so he 11? Family, no, this is a, this is an adult son. Okay. Uh, yeah. 20 year old son. And they said, we're going to kill him. So the family fled. They left their home and a nice big home. I've seen pictures of beautiful home. I mean, imagine just like never seeing your home again. Um, but that's the choice they had to make. They ran. They could not go to their family members. The Taliban had recently gone to one of their family weddings and killed three extended family members. And their whole extended family said, you know, we're mad at you for working with the Americans. Look at this trouble you've brought us. So they had no no safe haven there and they they made their way to Kabul and um found a hiding place and waited out while um a legal team from um, a group called irap uh alongside us at combined arms we were able to finally get them here under a program called humanitarian parole um and that's that's why we're taking care of this family um they are not eligible for benefits um, but we're working on upgrading their status because thankfully now that they, they as the beneficiaries or they as the um, as the survivors of someone who could have been the beneficiary of a, of a special immigrant visa, they're now eligible. So we're going to get them upgraded. I mean, you think about this family and you imagine what if the surviving spouse and children of a veteran were left out to dry like this? It would be infuriating. And that's the way I see it. I mean, this is. This family is now in Houston. Uh, they are eager to get to work. They're learning English. The kids are in school. I mean, it's a, it, it's as happy an ending as it can be given the circumstances. But I mean, you meet these people. These are these are people you want as your fellow Americans. They are um, 
really a tremendous, wonderful family. Yeah. And I think like, what's the lesson here? It's probably that it shouldn't have taken uh, 10 years for paperwork to get done for someone that, that, you know, was supporting us and had letters of recommendation and, and things were in order. So it's, you know, it's, it's as good as an ending as you can hope for, I guess. And there's plenty of people that did not, um, get out. Right. There's plenty of families of seven that are still stuck, but, uh, you just, you just have to imagine like if, if we could have done this better, if we could have had our system in place a little bit better, we wouldn't even have to be talking about this. A yeah. nine month promise turned into 10 years. That's insane. That's insane. When the Taliban is knocking at your door and dropping off letters and, and murdering your extended family, that's just unacceptable um, that we basically promised and, you know, held that time frame out in front of people. And then it turned into something like 10 years, uh, you know, in the murder of the, of the SIV recipient for any action to take place. Zach, you told me the other day that, uh, or you had mentioned a while ago about your, your network and using them. Sometimes they, they help you in, in your calls with veterans and SIVs. Uh, what are some of the things that you and your network have done to help some of the SIVs and some of the veterans too. Yeah, it's, you know, it really is one of these issues. I think that no matter how far you lean left or right, once you get the facts, um, you can agree that somebody that aided the United States in this capacity and uh, was told that they would, you know, get our protection and a ticket out of there should, should receive the full promise of what the United States said. So when I post things on LinkedIn or I tap into my networks, um, it really becomes this very central issue. It, it, it just doesn't, you know, the, the bipartisan political lines, the two-party system where you got to align one way or the other, man, when you put the facts out there, people come to an agreement and they're like, you know what? I totally can get behind this one side or the other veterans, civilians, everybody. It's, it's just one thing that I think is, um, you know, just kind of a unifier. So I use my network, you know, Cress initially when we were talking, uh, Cress had a budget with combined arms to purchase laptops for people. This is during COVID. So when these families are arriving here, there was no, they didn't have computers. So how do you do, how do you do virtual school? How do you do virtual work? How do you do remote work? How do you upskill yourself? How do you apply for jobs? You can't do any of that without a computer. So uh, one of the very small things that that I decided to do was I told Crest, like, man, save your budget. We're not going to go to to Best Buy and, and buy, you know, computers at retail price. I'm going to see if any of these organizations I work with or partner with are able to, you know, donate. Because a lot of companies recycle all their hardware, you know, every two or three years. So there's a lot of donation programs out there. And I got our name on a list and it's been a small dent, but in this community, I think we've gotten 120 computers, you know, good computers. Um, they're just a couple years old with light use and, and have been wiped down. We've gotten those refreshed and put in the hands of 120 families. So, you know, you multiply that out times, maybe they have four or five uh, family members in there. That's, that's impacting an awful lot of people um, at a time right now where I think people need it the most. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully we're here giving them a leg up and, um, you know, to giving them something that's going to be a tool that they can use in their lives to, to better themselves. And, and who knows during this whole thing, you know, I'd like to believe that the computers that we donated in, 
early August and in March, I think were the timeframes of this year that we donated those computers. I really hope they went to good use in, in helping people get out, you know, extended families, et cetera, either completing their paperwork or um, however they had to coordinate. So I like to believe that. What are the chances that, that some of these Afghans and, I, and Iraqis that are here legally and deserve to be here, that they would be communicating with family back home that does not believe in the call. So that would be Taliban or Al Qaeda or any of those other terrorist organizations. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, first of all, there's certainly plenty of sentiment that they have to deal with when they choose to help the Americans. I mean, we're still, we still are an outside power. So the people that, like you said, deserving folks that are here, fall alongside us they had to they had to convince their families that they were doing the right thing and so not everyone was receptive um i don't think i know i mean i think the thing is i think a lot of close family members if they had strong ties to any of those organizations it's gonna they're not gonna get through the background check but undoubtedly i mean you know you uh, they, they probably know it and i think that they're an important part their communications back home are a very important part of uh, of telling the story of why America is so great, because I think you know I think they're fighting against the propaganda that the Taliban or ISIS or whoever's putting out. Um, but then they've got this family member saying, "Well, I went to the United States, and um, you know, it's not the the streets aren't paved paved with gold, but I didn't get a computer from someone that cared about me, and you know." the veterans count me as one of them and, you know, this sort of thing. So I think it makes a big difference. And I look at a lot of these Facebook groups that have people back home applying and um, people back home for their home is what I'm saying back in Afghanistan that are, are, are talking about the current situation and talking about how they want to come to America. And Right now, a lot of them are having their doubts. A lot of them have been burned and a lot of them saw the last plane fly, fly away. Now they're angry. And then you compare that to when you actually do go to the airport and you actually get one of these families. One of the first things we do is we give them an American flag and say, welcome home. This is your home. And the thrill that they, you see on their face when the, that American flag is theirs now, I mean, that, that tells you all you need to know. These these guys once they get resettled, I mean, once they once they're here, they they totally bleed red, white, and blue, and uh, they're every bit of as American as we are. You know, we've got a guy here. He just graduated the University of Houston downtown with a business or finance degree. His name's Abdul. Uh, he was on patrol with the Marines, and um, a Marine stepped on an IED. Uh, the Marine was. Uh, very badly injured and Abdul not being his job. He ran out into the line of fire to render aid to this Marine. Now he is an interpreter. He's a contractor. He's a local national contractor. He has no duty to do anything dangerous. His job in a firefight is really to hide, but he had that bond with the Americans he was serving with. He ran out of the line of fire and he too was blown up. He, uh, he lost both of his legs and a piece of his arm and um, thankfully survived. And he's here now and he has a family and even he, I see him helping resettle other people and volunteer. Um, these are the kinds of people we're bringing. These are terrorist hunters. These are the people that have spent their whole life 
fighting evil, fighting terrorism. And um, we want that here. We want them as Americans. I'd expand on that and say the terrorist hunter piece, um, 100%. Our our missions wouldn't have been, I don't don't know, 1% as successful as they were if it weren't for somebody actively translating uh, listening to radio chatter at all hours of the night, sacrificing sleep to tell us what they're hearing on you know Taliban communications, helping us enter compounds the right way so that it, it wasn't a hostile situation. They've saved countless lives. Like I just I stand behind that remark, and and I, I would tell to anybody, tell them blue in the face. So you know the ones we've written letters of recommendation for, the ones that. That Crest and I go out and deliver mattresses to or greet at the airport, uh, you know, we we 100% believe that they likely uh, kept many of us alive over there. And um, in doing so, I fully believe they they kept, you know, terrorism from the doorsteps of everyday Americans that hopefully have lived in, you know, mostly peace since, you know, since the September 11th attacks. So, sorry to bring it full circle. I mean, just because I'm, I'm, I really want to mention this because I'm so proud of these folks. But uh, the real crazy ones, the real crazy ones, after being on patrol for years with the Marines and the Army and everybody else, they come to the United States and with a Green Guard, they immediately join the U.S. military. They immediately enlist. And so we've got several guys in our community that joined the Army and the Marines um, and went back as actual U.S. service members. Um, and served again. So they're, they're U.S. military veterans and they are these special immigrant visa recipients, now U.S. citizens. And then the third one we've got is now that it's been a while, now that we've had people here a while, their children are starting to join the military. So, I mean, we're in the business of making Americans is, is how I feel. And I, I just think uh, it's one of the coolest and most patriotic things that I've ever been a part of. Yeah, that's well said. And, you know, and, you asked me about my, my network and yeah, I've got, uh, you know, C-level people at, at some of America's biggest corporations that read or comment or, or help donate. Um, but I've also got, you know, I've got a guy who's an Iraqi SIV recipient that did the same thing, you know, served our country as an interpreter, came back uh, to America on the SIV recipient, came here, joined the army you know, served a full tour in the army and, and got out. And then what's he doing? He's on LinkedIn, resharing my stuff, helping me compile uh, organizations that we can, you know, donate to, to Afghan, you know, refugees, evacuees, et cetera. And it's just incredible the amount of determination they have and, and the goodwill that they have and just how much they're giving back, you know, every day in every aspect of their life. Do y'all have people right now that you know that are, still there in Afghanistan trying to get out and that they're scared to death. Yes, definitely. I mean, our, our group has uh, communicated with a lot of people. So I, I have, I have one personal friend there. Um, someone that uh, was originally a uh, combat interpreter with the Marines. It was by coincidence, he was with my unit when I wasn't there. And then um, I met him in Houston. He was, he was actually serving his community working for a nonprofit and was here and he got citizenship and um, raised a family here, but he went back to Afghanistan this year to take care of his extended family and help get them out. And he's currently in Afghanistan. He did not get out and um, he's working on a way to get his brothers and sisters and parents out. 
and then combined arms, we have received countless uh, pleas for help on every medium, email, uh, Facebook, every social media platform, um, every way you can possibly send us a message, Afghans that need our help that have been applying are asking for help. And we're trying to help where we can, but it's, um, it's a lot. Uh, there's a, there's a ton of people and they, they're sending us their documents. We're like, you've got all these, you've got all these letters of recommendation from the army. You've got your HR letter. Why can't you come? And the reason is it got backed up. The evacuation didn't work out as planned. And, um, and now they're trapped. And those people and wouldn't be, they wouldn't go up to a Taliban checkpoint one week ago and hand them, but show them those papers. Right. Right. I mean, you can't, unfortunately now these people that have, have fought and earned these letters of recommendation that they hold dear, we have to ask them to burn them. Now they need to burn their U S anything connecting them to us uh, because the Taliban are searching for that. They're searching their phones to see if they're communicating with the West. They're, they're doing everything they can like that. So yeah, it's uh you definitely don't want to get caught with that now. Yeah. And I'd say, man, the last two weeks, you don't like, it, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's almost like we had the luxury of two-way communication, which was, was nuts. You're getting texts, you're getting all kinds of you know, people are knocking on my door, please help. Right. This is almost every veteran who is trying to help is getting messages like this and they're still trying to do their day jobs. They're still trying to, uh, you know, be a member of society, raise their families. And there's a lot of this stuff going on that a lot of people are bottling in, you know, including, including Crest and myself. And it's, it's just absolutely insane. But so, you know, I say this, the last two weeks was almost a luxury of two-way communications. You could, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, message somebody, get some information, you know, let me, let me see what we got. I'm trying to help you at least complete your SIV paperwork. So if there's a chance that you get out, at least you don't have to remain in a, a third country for a long time, right? Like hopefully we get this expedited. So we're doing everything we can, but this last week, man, it's it's a comms blackout. You can't risk just reaching out to people. You don't know who's going to pick up their phone. Uh, like Cress said, they're burning their documents. And when I say they're burning their documents, that can't be, I can't say that like heavily enough the documents that they are showing the aerial footage you see when they were outside the airport and they're holding stuff up. These are their lifelines, like their lifelines to live till tomorrow. Their letters of recommendation, their pictures with U uh, S dignitaries that came and visited with them. They're everything they can think of to show that they helped us and they're not a bad guy. And it's their proudest possession. And for them to now have to burn those and hope that, you know, they've maybe emailed them to the right people uh, blindly because there's really no confirmation that comes from, you know, the state department or anybody that's, that's supposedly been gathering these things. That's just a, that's a heavy ask. And that's a heavy thing to think about. If you were in their shoes, that's your, that's like you being stranded in a foreign country and then having to burn your passport, knowing that's probably your only way out yeah. eventually. So tell me what else that you definitely want to cover. Well, I just want to talk a little bit about what productive members of society uh, our Afghan friends are, because, um, you know, we talked about the cost. That's an initial cost. And, and then it's it. Then they're out on their own. They have to they have to make it. Um, they have to support themselves. And they do. Um, I think that 
they and, and in general, maybe maybe it's the entire immigrant community. They're very entrepreneurial. You get a lot of small business owners. Um, you get a lot of uh, people working all sorts of different jobs. And very quickly, they're they're back in the workforce and paying taxes and paying back uh, what what little was spent on them to get them started. So you think about like at the end of Vietnam, right? I would say most of the Vietnamese people you meet in the United States have their ties to why their families here have something to do with the, with the Vietnam war. And um, we are so glad to have them in the United States, but they came the same way. They came in masses. They came on boats and after a war from a very bad place. And I can tell you the money that we spent to bring them here was well spent and um, what productive members of society they are. I mean, I think, uh, in, in our, our SIV community, you've got pretty highly educated people. I mean, one of the indicators as to whether or not someone would join the Taliban or join the United States is, you know, could their mother read? Did they have an education? Um, and if they did, they joined our side. Um, and so most of the folks that come here, they speak English. They had a degree from back home. They had some sort of profession um, that they gave up so they could serve alongside us. And, you know, we're getting those skills here, um, that I think we can always, we can always need and use. Yeah. You mentioned Vietnam just now, Chris, and I think it's important to kind of point out that, you know, the laptop drive I mentioned, it's incredible how some of these things come full circle and how you think, oh man, it's such a small world. But the person that we've got that is with a fortune 100 company and he's the the CIO, the you know the head of their IT department. This guy has volunteered his team on Saturdays to come help wipe these computers and then and help do white glove handoff with uh, you know email setup, password setup, uh, you know quick familiarization of what the computer is, so that these SIV recipients can immediately start using their computers. We're not just getting the computers and handing them off and saying good luck. I hope you can log into it or download something like we're handing them over just like an IT department would hand over to a major corporation in America. And it's because of, of this gentleman. And he's got an incredible story too. He was an orphan from the Vietnam war. He was adopted by a U.S. soldier who served in the Vietnamese war or the Vietnam war and married, married the, his interpreter from the Vietnam war, who was a, obviously a female that was helping translate for the U S forces there. So, this guy's adopted. He comes here. Now he leads this IT department. He's helping us do all this stuff. He went back and adopted a, a little girl from Vietnam earlier last year. And I think it's just, it's just incredible. The, the full circle story sometimes that happens in the, just the continuation of kindness and goodness and, and good things that are happening, um, you know, in and around this community. So I, I definitely think that's, a cool thing to highlight. So I know, you know, he wouldn't want his, his name out there or the recognition. Maybe we'll tag him later, but uh, I think it's really an incredible story. It is. What do people do? Because I'm sure this can happen. This happens to y'all. It's happened to me. It could happen to anybody who has any, any, somehow any connection to Afghanistan. What would do we do if we get contacted by anyone from there? Let's say someone like me, what do I do? Yeah. Um, you know, Chris can probably answer this better, but I would say right now, be wary. You don't know how many, at this point, you don't know 
who's real and who's not. Um, people are becoming pretty sophisticated in social media. So I would just say, hold off and engaging. One of the worst things you can do is to start handing out information, sharing information, um, you know, getting emotional about it. So just pause, you know, think it through just like any other, you know, maybe phone call you get that's, oh, you owe money to the IRS, give us your social, right? Like, just think about it like that. And it's hard to say, cause I wish, I wish we could just reach out and help everybody, but we got to be careful too. And it's not just for our own sake, it's for others. They can triangulate. Any bad actor can, can contact an American that, you know, seems like he gives a damn about this and, you know, triangulate and, and hurt somebody in the end. So mm-hmm. just be careful. Honestly, at this point, the state department has a registry and a database. They're working through it, albeit slow and uh, not up to par for many of us. It's out there. So, you know, if you get contacted, I would just honestly use your own discretion, but maybe forward it to somebody and, and, and vet it with a third party or something like that. You know, Chris and I do plenty of this, but the last thing you want to do is, is engage, start sharing information, maybe start sharing documents or, or, or whatever, put them in a, in a database or send a link around. So there's too much of that going on right now. The, the people that are at most risk are are not using American applications. They're not typing things out in English. They're not doing any of that stuff because the second the Taliban picks up somebody's phone that has that stuff on it, it's it's a red flag and, yeah. and that's the end right there. So I'll let Chris expand on that. Yeah, and I just say, you know, if someone reaches out and they need help, this is a very strange uh, time because there's this gigantic atrocity happening where the Taliban's hurting so many people. And we have the ability to be directly connected to those people real time. And it's very scary. And you feel like, man, I've got to do something. But uh, sometimes more harm can be done than good. So I, I would direct people to official channels. And the number one would be uh, the State Department. So, uh, you know, the embassy website still exists for the U.S. embassy in Afghanistan, even though the embassy doesn't. Uh, and it does it does direct you to uh some things that they can do or at least monitor. And the short answer is there's not a ton that we can do right now. We're in a, we're in a weird spot where I I don't know what our government's going to do. Um, I hope it's something and I hope it's something strong soon because we have a lot of people that are our friends. America has a lot of friends that we made a promise to and they're stuck there. All right. So I'm going to read a a post here. and I, I think I got this from LinkedIn. And um, it's from a, a PJ, an Air Force PJ. And here's what he, his name is Sean Hurley. Do you know him, Zach? Rings a bell. Okay. But I'm not yeah, even sure if he's connected to you. Yeah, I just, I yeah, forgot now. Look him up. Yeah. But, but anyway, here's what he said. I'm, I'm sorry, Sean, if I, if I know you, buddy. Yeah, sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I put you on the spot. But anyway, um, he says, as I sit here with my team and Cutter, safe from the chaos, I'm trying to think of the right words to explain what we just saw in Kabul. We witnessed a humanitarian crisis that will likely turn into wholesale assassinations, murder, sex, slavery, and human trafficking. On 15 August 2021, the city of Kabul fell to the Taliban. In the days that followed, we pushed our physical and emotional limits to a near breaking point, and I, could, I couldn't be more proud to be part of the leadership team that took decisive action to defy the Taliban and rescue as many people as we could. During our last 16 days at HKIA, is that that's the airport, right? The car international airport. Yeah, Hamid Karzai. Yeah. Okay. We were privileged to be the last pararescue team in Afghanistan after 20 years of combat operations. 
We worked with highly professional joint and, and interagency teams. All right, I'm going to skip through here and go over to um, the collective effort rescued thousands. As we speak, the Taliban is going door to door in Kabul, making the marking the homes of young single females, some children, so they can claim them as wives. These women and children will ultimately be kidnapped and raped under the veil of Sharia law. A vast majority of these people had already received written death threats, been beaten, and had their homes taken from the, from the Taliban. This historical event needs to be captured. Leaving Afghanistan at this juncture feels wrong, especially after watching 13 of our brothers and sisters take their final flight on a C-17 in flag-draped coffins. We all respond. Just let's share your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, when he describes what the Taliban is doing right now, um, that matches with what we're hearing from the people we're talking to. I do believe it is that bad. Um, and that is not what the Tal- Taliban spokesman is saying. I mean, they've, they're trying to reinvent themselves, I guess, publicly. But uh, everything that we're hearing from people on the ground is matches that. And, and it does feel wrong. It feels wrong that we're leaving the people that served alongside us in this position. I, I, I feel uh, similarly to him, I would say, and I can see where he's coming from. Yeah. I, the only thing I'd add to that is uh, I think that that sounds all factual. I mean, that's what we all kind of anticipated a long time ago, especially since uh, April with the withdrawal date. I think it's easy for the Taliban to sit back and and wait and then uh, be able to negotiate from a position of power, and, and we were not. Now, uh, to expand on that, man, plenty of PJs, plenty of other soft guys, you know, countless 160th guys flying little birds and stuff. Like, that stuff was real, and those guys are – 100% uh, heroes for taking action on that stuff. Cause who knows how many countless lives they saved. So I, I do want to, you know, applaud the efforts of, you know, we've heard of a various task force and things going on. There's, there's countless others you don't hear about. Um, so a lot of people took things into their own hands and, and made some decisive actions in the last days there. So, uh, you know, kudos to those dudes. And then, you know, number two, man, this is absolutely correct. And I don't know why we're not seeing, um, uh, you know, horror stories on the news about what's going on with the Taliban, but it, it's, it's still hard to, to believe that we had to partner with them in any capacity on, in the last days there. Uh, it's, it's a real, it's a real shame in my book um, that, you know, they are who we, who we, who we think they are, right? Like they're bad guys, they're evil mm-hmm. and they're doing stuff to single women, children, obviously, uh, you know, heads of household males, and it's awful stuff. But I'll also say um, that, man, when people try to paint the, this vast difference between the Taliban and, and ISIS-K and other groups, like it's it's not that much of a of a spread, right? Like if they're all they're all interconnected, and it's not, it's not this big gap that that people are telling you. So just keep that in mind. There's there's nothing good happening over there to anyone we left behind. I'll promise you that. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, look, I, I'm pissed and. To hear the president and his his counterparts tell us to trust the Taliban is just bullcrap, and that just fires me up. And, and I, you know, I could go on and on about this, but I, I pre- really, really appreciate y'all's insight. 
and your facts. And this has been so, so educational and so much information that most of no one knows. And this, these are things that I've been thinking and probably a lot of people think. And there's, well, shoot, you've seen the questions. I, there's like, I could ask you like 15 more at least. There's a lot more I'd love to cover. Uh, what else? Is there anything else that though that you want to you want to share before we wrap it up? Um, no, look, I appreciate you having us on and I appreciate you asking the hard questions. And, and look, this is, you know, this is one of the posts I made earlier. Like America doesn't need to be divisive on this. We don't need to be polarized. We can all agree that leaving, leaving one American behind is obviously too many, right? Like we left hundreds of Americans. Now we're talking about SIVs and, and this thing's been about SIVs because that's near and dear to Crest and I's heart. But let's not forget, like we, we've left people behind and this is an absolute atrocity and I think it could have been avoided. So, you know, in closing, I'm also pissed. Um, but I think Crest and I try to center ourselves as much as possible because we know there's still more work to do and there's more people to help. So, you know, the time for looking in the rearview mirror and in hindsight being 2020, like, yeah, we're all going to try to hold people accountable for this absolute disaster. But, you know, right now there's, there's still stuff to do. So, Anyone who's interested, you know, um, you know, if, if they're able to contact you and you, and you feel like you want to send them over to me, um, I am I'm happy to field all questions and and I just encourage people to 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 not fall into the the media kind of partisan stuff that's going on. Don't you don't have to be in one camp or the other. You can just be a, a good human that believes that the veterans that were there and saw all this. Um, can vouch for the people that are coming here. And, and that's the honest truth. Yeah. And to go out, I mean, the war, I think many Americans, myself included, had an interest in seeing the war come to an end. Um, and the fact of the matter is the United States doesn't even have the authority to end the war. We're gone now, but the war is still happening. The Taliban is still at war with the people that we left behind. They're at war with the remaining resistance in the country. They're at war with ISIS, and ISIS is at war with them. And there's all kinds of violence still happening there that our friends are being subject to. And um, now we are no longer a player. And um, for some, that, that may feel good. And uh, it doesn't feel as good as I wanted it to um, to be out. I'll, I'll tell you that. Yeah, and I'll look. I'll quickly add to that. I'm proud of my service there. I think uh, if we increased the literacy rate one percent, which I think we increased it, I don't know what did it go across from four to forty five percent or something like that. I saw a stat. If we yeah, gave anybody years of education for uh, that's a whole generation that got a proper education, you know. Exactly, a, a chance at education, a chance at making themselves, a chance at coming to America. So look. I don't look back and, and say this was a waste or in vain. Like I would never say that I'm proud of my time there. I think we all made a difference, um, you know, to include your brother. I think everybody should be proud of what Americans have done in Afghanistan. I think to, to sum it up and to look, Oh, this was 20 years and, uh, and it all wrapped up in, in late August of 2021, how we didn't want it to. That's kind of an unfair assessment of it. We made, a lot of differences in a lot of people's lives and, and gave people a lot of opportunity gave people a lot of hope in the region. Um, you know, and throughout the globe, I think helping prop up women's rights in Afghanistan, all the things that happened 
everybody should be proud of. And veterans have formed an incredibly tight bond, you know, throughout the post 9-11 community. And I think it just obviously it just shows itself right now. Everyone's reaching out to each other. I've been checked in on. I've checked in on everybody else. People in the, in the private sector that haven't served are reaching out and, and you know, attempting to understand what's going on. And it, I think it's a good thing. And I think everyone should absolutely be proud of what they did. And unfortunately, of course, there are sacrifices made, but man, we, we moved the needle over there. We gave people an opportunity. Uh, we gave Afghanistan our best shot. So we should all be proud of, of what we did individually. Yeah, you're men of action. You are and you were men of action both. And so I'm grateful to you all for your service then and now. And uh, we are fortunate in this great country to live in this great country that we live in. We are so blessed. And, and I think you two know that more than me because you've you've been somewhere that's, you know, maybe hell on earth and uh, you've seen how bad it can be. So I know that we are very fortunate and our problems here are so minimal compared to what other people are dealing with. Why don't y'all just tell us what, how people can find you or your, the organizations that you represent. And I'll put it in the show notes too. So, yeah, I'm, I'm Chris Clippert. I'm a volunteer uh, community leader for the combined arms, SIVs and allies group. So just go to combinedarms.us. If you're a veteran, if you're a special immigrant visa recipient, or you're just interested in working with the veteran community, uh, all over the country, but especially in Houston, go to combinedarms.us. Yeah, I'd echo that. That's And that's not a BS thing. That's not go to our website and, and browse and, and nothing will happen. Um, there's actually a, a ticking clock when you sign up for uh, any kind of service on the website and someone will contact you. Um, I don't know, Chris, what is it, 48 hours? There's a, there's a time limit where somebody has to get back in touch with, with yeah, someone. Yeah, it's... Uh, it depends on the service. I mean, if you're, if you're signing up to volunteer, you know, you've got a little bit, that organization has a little bit of time to reach out to you, but if it's a mental health need or homelessness need, something that's very uh, pressing and urgent, the time restriction is much more stringent and the organizations compete. So we're talking about hours, not days. Yeah. So yeah, I'd encourage people to go once again, that's, you know, combined arms.us. That's, uh, you know, the home of, of some of the best veteran service organizations here in Houston and, and it's expanding across Texas and nationally. So we're all connected. I also, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn, you know, Zach Asmus, I, I work at Okta. I help uh, run the veteran employee resource group there. So feel free to connect to me on, on LinkedIn and uh, you know, whatever, whatever questions come out of this podcast, um, you know, please feel free to reach out to me and, I think both Crest and I would be happy to, to clarify anything or expound on anything that was talked about here. And we just appreciate you letting us on and, and giving us a forum to kind of discuss what's going on. Cause I think it's, it's important and people are unsure and it's who knows what, what sources to trust these days, but here's two, you know, primary sources that, uh, that you can get info from. I'm glad. Yeah. People have asked me what, what do we do? What can we do? What organizations can we trust? And so I've, I have, there are definitely some that I, I know of. And, and now I combined arms is absolutely one too, that I would I wholeheartedly support and would endorse. Thank you, gentlemen, man. It's, it's really been great. I really appreciate you staying up late with me and, and, and talking. So 